Part three of The Boy with the White Hair, written and performed by Nick Thurston. Now, let us return to our valley in the mountains, where the Kurog herder Mulad has drawn a long breath and is thinking of how best to explain things to his daughter. I understand that you are upset, he said at last in his gentlest voice. I myself loved to go and see the sights of the world when I was a young man. But I have learned well not to venture far from these hills any more. For although the people of Nust are, in their way, gentle and kind, the folk outside of these mountains are not the same. They are mean and greedy. They have forgotten the hospitality of the high hills, and are quick to turn you from their door, even in time of need. They are mistrustful of strangers, and often even more so of their own friends. They worship the locked door, the full granary, and the doorless stone wall, and think that these things make them safe. No, my sweet Freitney, I... Here the kindly herdsman caught himself. He remained silent a moment, then he sighed, and a wistful look came into his eye. He shook his head. Why, look here. <laughs> look what's just happened. I have called you by your child's name. I am wise enough to know what's going on here. I'm rattling on because I am afraid of what might happen to you down there in the world. But you are no child, not any longer. And there is only so much I can do to dissuade you from going where you will. My beloved Thula, you are a woman, and your own person. I will not command you to do anything. You may come and go as you please. But Thula, perhaps moved by her adoptive father's accession to her wishes, did not go down from the valley. At least... Not right away. She went to him and hugged him and tousled his graying hair and told him that she was and would always be his little girl. And for a while, all remained well for them. One morning at the beginning of autumn, Thula rose to find Mulad still upon his cot. "'Wake up, you old snoozer!' she said, prodding his shadowy form, for it was still before dawn. "'Or I'll eat your breakfast after I'm through with mine!' He rose, but only reluctantly, and throughout the day she began to notice that he had developed a dry, hacking cough. In the evening, she picked mullen, snowroot, and fresh pine needles, and made him an infusion." but the cough remained in the morning. She tried other herbs, and after a week, 
coaxed a lynx down from its den to purr over him, but still the cough did not improve. Cutting a willow wand for Hialeah's favor, she went hunting for gremlin cups in the wet woods that lay at the bottom of their valley. She brought a half-dozen of the crumple-capped maroon mushrooms home and wove an expelling charm over them. Half of them she fed to Mulad and hid the rest beneath his bed for the Nirni. The gremlin cups had no effect. In fact, the symptoms were worsening. Her father's breathing had begun to sound constricted. It was as if some invisible entity had taken him by the throat and was slowly squeezing his windpipe. She knew she had to do something. But what? At first light, Thula ventured back to the temple of the Sunahulani to seek their help. To her dismay, she found it abandoned. The priestesses had gone. Only frost nags remained in their place. These transparent beings sat on the porch in their blowing gray rags with eyes that burned like blue-white coals. They would not speak to her. Yet their silent gaze directed her within, and in one of the empty stone halls she found a chest filled with runic tablets. Their edges were chipped with wear. Piecing out the inscriptions, she discovered that the nags had pointed her to a trove of ancient magic. One of the tablets contained a breaking spell stronger than anything Mulad had ever taught her. She returned from the Tala, certain that it would cure him. That night, she read and reread the symbols by Rushlet. Mulad's gasping breaths kept her awake. Before dawn, when she knew the spell by heart, she struck out into the mountains. Thula chose a pure stream and followed it all the way up to its source. There she found a rocky pool. Wading into the icy water, she searched for hours until at last she found a small emerald tucked among the pebbles. Back at the cottage, she placed the glittering green stone on Mulad's anvil, said the strongest word of power she knew, and cracked it open with a blow of the heavy smithing hammer. A ring of force burst unseen across the valley. A dozen minor curses, left behind by Moroks in another age, were broken by it. But Mulad's condition only got worse. By mid-autumn, Thula had taken over almost all of the chores. She rose long before dawn to stoke the fire and milk the beasts. She made all the meals. She took the herd to pasture 
and used her spellcraft to keep the big roan curags in line. She collected firewood, ground their meager supply of grain, mended clothing, scared off wolves, made pottery, patched holes in the roof, and did a thousand other things that only the herders of the high places know and must accomplish in order to stay alive. For the mountains, all mountains, are unforgiving places, even when the season is fine and winter was on its way. By time the snow bear had appeared on the western horizon, and the daughter moon had slipped into the cloak, Mulad no longer rose from his bed. He breathed only with great difficulty. One morning, a dark black stain appeared like a collar under the skin around his neck. When she told him of it, he sighed and shut his eyes. I have wondered when this might come he said. It is a known mark of Malagorn. Alas, my child, what I have is fatal. Fatal? cried Thula. But, but surely there is a cure? Every illness has a cure. I'm afraid that for some illnesses, said Mulad in a weakening voice, The only cure is death. When Thula fell to weeping, the sickly Kurag herd took her hand and stroked it. He tried to console her. He had lived a long life, and a happy one, and the end must come sometime. But her tears were so hot, and her sobs so pitiful, that his heart broke for her pain. And he said, There is one thing that might be tried, but I think it will be impossible. What is it? Tell me anything. I'll do it. Mulad sighed, and in a reluctant voice he said, The wash of gold. The wash of gold? The dwarves... Add a remedy for my condition, he said. For they were wont to become sick with what they called the Gistalunga, the great greed. It was, they believed, the mountain's revenge for their gold hunger. To cure it, they had to sacrifice a portion of their take back to the land. Their priests would paint the sick one with wet clay. Onto this, they sprinkled a powder made from pure gold dust. Thus anointed, the fellow would be rowed into the exact center of a sacred tarn and cast into the water. Once all the golden powder had been washed away, the sickness, too, would go. Where can we find gold in such a quantity? Among men, said Mulad quietly. The next day, Thula rose long before the sun. She packed up a leather sack and pulled on her warmest sheepskin. 
She set the Kurags to graze in the dwindling pasture, left Mulad with enough food to last until she returned, and began the long and treacherous journey down from the mountains. She reached Noost as the first snow began to fall noiselessly on the rooftops. She went straight to the Suthi, with its ramshackle walls and hard regulars. I am here, she said to the people she met there, to find gold. Gold, said they. Why, you'll find no gold here. Not more than a few gildings worth, anyway. And not even that, unless you've got plenty of silver to trade for it. I have no silver at all, she said. Save what is in my ears. Those little trinkets, laughed an old, toothless woman who sat by the door. Those won't buy you gold. No, child. The only thing you've got that will pay for gold is something you won't be in a hurry to part with. I'm willing to part with anything, said Thula with a fierceness that made everyone in the room prick up their ears, for it was the sound of trouble. Where you want to go is Oathguard, said the old woman. Without another word, Thula nodded and made for the door. If you go down there, said the old woman, you won't be back before the storms come. There is that stillness in the night sky which heralds the coming frost, and the moons have already put on their crowns. We all know what that means so early in the year. It's going to be a hard winter, child. A hard winter. There are cold days ahead. And it was true. As Thula continued her journey down from the mountains, the snow followed her like the train of an endless white dress. By the time she reached the rim of the sudden valley, the first storm was howling its way south across the evenhold plateau. The brown grass bent and froze, and the trees hissed in anger as wind scoured the last leaves from their shivering limbs. Thula, too, was angry. In each of the villages she'd passed along the way, she'd met with disappointment. No one, neither rich nor poor, had been willing to give her what she needed. Everyone was too busy trying to keep themselves warm and fed, and their larders stocked as the winter bore down upon them. Recall that Thula was a stranger to civilization. It was a mystery to her why no one would give her a few pieces of useless yellow metal, when that metal would buy the life of a man, a man whom she loved more greatly than anything else in the world. As the old woman had said, there were some men had offered to exchange gold for something Thula had. 
But Thula had been horrified by these offers, once she understood what they were, and then outraged. She had spat at the men who made them, and paid for it with a black eye and a chipped tooth. She was lucky it had not cost her more. When Thula arrived at the gates of Oathgard, she was a ghost of her former self. Her shoes were torn, her feet were bloody. Her body had been thinned out by long days with little food, and her eyes were darkened by long nights with little shelter. She staggered through the streets in a daze. She was amazed by the cliff-like walls, the nested stone houses with their carefully tended gardens, and the castle on the hill in the center. This last was to her eyes a mountain, but one made of buttresses, ramparts, and towers. At last she had come to the city she had dreamt of seeing. She climbed the emerald steps of Braysteel one by one, awestruck by the slabs of pure gemstone embedded in the granite. The gates of the castle were thrown open for her, and she was embraced by a flood of warmth and yellow light that poured out from within. Enormous men in shining armor bowed gallantly to her. Then came a gentle old fellow in a burgundy doublet, who led her to a long, high-vaulted hall, full of firelight and more warmth and many comfortable things. There she was told to wait. Thula wandered about the room. She seemed to have entered some sort of heaven. She rubbed the rich, soft fabric of the tapestries between her fingers and pressed her toes into the thick rug. It was like an ocean of pillow moss. She marveled at the weapons and other trophies hanging on the walls. Seven fires burned in seven hearths, and when she sat into one of the cushioned chairs that sat before them, she felt as if she would weep for relief. Presently, a pair of doors swung open. From them emerged the most beautiful girl Thula had ever seen. Though by now it was full winter, the stranger's skin was sun-tanned, and she had freckles on her cheeks. Her eyes were bright green and seemed almost to be lit up from within. She wore an emerald dress over a snowy shift, cross-laced in front to accentuate a pair of full breasts and shapely hips. Her hair had been left undone. It flowed down her back like spun gold. She looked about the same age as Thula. Although that was all they seemed to have in common, Thula liked her immediately. There was something inexplicably familiar about the girl that Thula couldn't place, It drew her in, and made her feel at ease. She had the queer notion that they had known one another all their lives. And when the stranger stepped into the light, Thula's breath caught in her throat. The woman was sparkling with jewelry. 
Green naga pearls dangled from her ears. The belt she wore was made from flattened links of solid gold, and upon her breast glittered a net-like necklace set with seven emeralds, each of the purest quality. Surely, Thula thought, she had come to the right place to find her father's cure. Welcome to Oathguard, said the woman. I am Princess Frirla. I hope you will accept me as your host until my parents return. They are away paying homage to Aura, the goddess of my mother's birth, at the Thundering Shrine on the northern end of the valley. Have you been given anything to eat or drink? Thula's mouth had gone dry. She could only shake her head. Frirla clapped her hands and smiled. Then I shall have the honor of serving you. Thula began to tremble. She had come so far and had experienced so much hardship on her way that she did not know whether to believe what she was hearing. Sensing this, the princess put her hand on Thula's shoulder and looked into her eyes. There's no need to worry, she said. You're safe here. Whatever has happened to you, it's over now. You'll find nothing but comfort in our home. The princess disappeared. She returned in what seemed like the blink of an eye, carrying a tray laden with steaming platters. Thula's mouth watered. She hadn't eaten a full meal in days. And such a meal it was. There was hot soup, swimming with chunks of potato, leeks and fennel. And when she dipped in her spoon, it came up heavy with pieces of boar that melted in her mouth. There were triangular pastries packed with mushrooms and shallots, fried in butter and spiced with rosemary, sage and thyme. When Thula could eat no more, she was given warm wine and cordial, and the princess sat down beside her. It is a great honor to serve any guests that come to our house, said Frirla. It usually falls to my father, Thane Hafnir, and my mother, Essenia. But I am glad I get to serve you. Now tell me, what is your name? And what has brought you to our hall on such a cold and dreadful night? Tell me everything. Thula looked into the princess's eyes. They were warm and earnest. Thula had the sense that Frirla was eager to listen and to understand. She opened her heart. My father, who must be the gentlest and most noble-hearted man in all the hold, has fallen ill. His disease is terrible to behold. He chokes as if a spirit of the grim realm is strangling him, and his skin begins to turn gray as ash. It grows worse day after day. Unless I can save him, he will surely die. But but the cure is gold itself, which I have learned is a thing men hate to part with. I have been turned away at every door. Yet I feel that at last I have reached a place of kindness and generosity. This fortress, whose walls seemed so intimidating and unfriendly from without... Has opened to reveal the greatest welcome within. 
Will you help me? Whatever this sum of gold is, it would save my beloved father's life. I would be indebted to you forever. I could return here straight away and work for you for however long in order to pay it down. The princess smiled and dabbed at the corners of her eyes. It was clear she had been moved by Thula's sincerity. But just as she was opening her mouth to reply, a commotion came from the direction of the main hall. A moment later, the butler popped in to announce that the thane and his lady had returned. In they came, shaking snow off their heavy, fur-lined winter cloaks. Hafnir was red-cheeked from the cold and breathing hard after the climb up the emerald steps. Esenaya was sighing with satisfaction. Both wore that expression of inner contentment known only to those who have prayed earnestly and made the appropriate sacrifices to the gods. Welcome home, said Friarla, kissing her parents and welcoming them in. You have come just in time to do something good for one of your people. I know how much joy it gives you to help those in need, and in this case the request is so simple that I know you will not refuse it. Oh, said Hafnir, raising an eyebrow. When you take that tone, I know just what it means. I suppose your mother and I need to take the sleigh all the way up to Jalhelm to settle another land dispute? Or perhaps the evening will be spent hearing out arguments about the price of dung again? No, father, said Freerla, rolling her eyes. It's nothing so difficult as that. And don't talk about dung in front of our guest. It's not very lordly of you. What then? asked the thane, laughing at his daughter's scolding. Something so simple you can have it done before dinner, said Freerla and directed her parents' attention to Thula, who stood in the back of the room. This is Thula, who has come all the way down from Noost. Her father is deathly ill, and the only intervention is an ancient dwarf cure. Ah, said Hafnir, nodding sympathetically. The gold wash, is it? I know it well. My own uncle once had what they used to call the Great Greed. Come here, girl. Let me hear it from your mouth. How long has your father been ill? If it's something so simple as a half-weight of gold you need, we'll take care of it right this instant. Thula came hesitantly forward. She felt a certain reluctance to approach so great a man as the Thane of all Evenhold. But he waved her on with a gentle smile, and his wife smiled also, and the two of them looked so welcoming and benevolent that Thula's apprehension was appeased. But the moment she stepped into the firelight, everything changed. A look of horror swept across Thane Hafnir's face. His eyes shot wide, and he stepped back, white as a sheet, that... that necklace! He stammered, pointing a shaking finger at Thula's throat. Why, said Esenaya, it's only a rune of winter, the charm of Sirn, a 
can be the matter? But Thane Hafnir looked as if he had seen a specter. He began to tremble violently and staggered backwards on his heels. No, he said. It can't be. It can't! Father, said Frirla, you're scaring her. Come now and leave off with this jest. My Thane, said Thula, have I done something to offend you? But a flame was kindling in Hafnir's eye. A flame of madness. What? cried the Thane, his fear now mingled with rage. A demon, is it? You dare to visit me in my own halls? Wearing the skin of my own child? A demon? the bewildered Thula began. I'm, I'm not a... But Hafnir shook his fist at her. You'll find no welcome here! Quickly! Protection! And now the Thane ran to the wood store beside the fire and started throwing aside the logs on top, scattering them upon the floor behind him as he dug with both hands. Lurch! shouted Hafnir. Protector against evil! Cast Larch into the fire! Now he took logs of larch wood, which were nested beneath the rest, and cast them one after another into the flames. When he had filled the first fireplace, he ran straight to the next. Others, alarmed by the shouting, began to come into the hall. But Hafnir took no notice of them, only rushing from hearth to hearth and throwing in more of the larch branches until all seven fireplaces were full, and the hall blazed with heat and firelight and smoke. All the while, he shouted and raved like a madman. Ghost! he shouted. Demon! Draver! Come here to dredge up the past, have you? Come here to play on a poor man's guilt? Ha! <laughs> You'll quit this place yet! Esenaya and her daughter, embarrassed and terrified, tried to calm the thing. Freerla threw her arms about her father's waist and tried to stop him by bodily force. But he merely dragged her about the room, and at last cast her off upon the carpet where she lay in tears. Once the hall was thick with the smoke of the larch branches, Thane Hafnir turned on Thula who stood frozen in place. Still you do not leave, he said. Then let your true nature be revealed. Snatching up a crusty pine cob, he cracked the cone on the mantelpiece. Yellow flames burst from it, and he thrust the burning cob at Thula. Holding it at arm's length, he glared at her, certain that at any moment the flames would reveal her as a shade or a wraith. But the rippling light of a witch pine's cob shows what is really there, whether flesh or ghostly ether, and Thula's image did not change. The only difference was a slight whitening of her already pale skin. Husband, said Esenaya, approaching him as if he were a wild animal. You see now 
that she is only a mortal girl. Look how terrified she... But Hafnir flung the burning cob to the floor, refusing to believe what it showed him. No! he shouted. Even the light lies. He drew his sword and held the gleaming steel towards Thula. She could scarcely believe her eyes. In the flame and smoke of the great hall, he looked like some fiery monster drawn straight out of hell. By the smoke of Oira's wood, I bless this blade, he said. Now get you gone before I let it kiss you. And he strode towards Thula with the sword before him. Esenaya threw herself upon his shoulders, but he cast her violently aside. Others came to try and restrain him, but Hafnir spun on them with the sword, and they fell back with their hands outstretched in fear. Hafnir turned once more to Thula. His face had become a mask of horror and rage. Go, cruel spirit! Hafnir spat from foaming lips. Go back to whatever frozen hell you came from, and never, ever return. Thula ran. Out she flew from the smoky chamber, through the halls, ignoring the supplications of Esenaya and Frirla, and of the servants of the castle. She burst from the main doors, her hand pressing upon the now-faded rune Ving, which, despite many attempts to remove it, had remained where Thula's own mother had set it. She ran to the frozen night, the howling wind, and the silent, slow-falling snow.